Here's what I want to see. I want to see a cat fight between Judy Larson and Donna. No! One, one in her prom dress, the other in her letter jacket, fighting in the bowling alley. Who wins the affection of the other? That's what I want to see. I think Donna would win in the fight. Well, Dee Dee is pretty skinny. Yeah. But she has ghost-like strength. Something to consider. Well, both of them have ghost-like strength. I get to eat my apple pie a la mode with a two Coke chaser and you get a milkshake. What's left of Jam's milkshake, that is. Ew. Ew. I want my own milkshake. Chocolate, please. I am so scared. I think I'm going to eat some marshmallows to sate my fear. I'm scared of eating marshmallows. Because of the pajamas? They just gross me out. I like the pajamas, but not the insides. Fucking disgusting. Gross. Good evening, match scratchers. Pick a patch, scratch a match, and brew up from a wicked weed and repulsive root, a horror-laden batch. Follow the drying leaves to the dying fire-lit clearing. Here, we'll recite chilling tales and ignite cooling coals. Lob another log upon the fire. If you claim you're unafraid, you're a goddamn liar. When midnight chimes, they will meet, submitting sick tales to scare. Master your fear, stoke the heat, embrace the glowing orange glare. Match scratchers, never fear. Dr. Red Devil, with a ruh, ruh, ruh. And falsetto, no mister, accent on the toe, are here. Lock up what will easily scare. Sequester that which you'd rather not share. That foreboding fireside rustling in the thicket was likely only a bear. These episodes... For campfire scary tales tonight are so very profound with hints of melancholy but they're also scary don't you think very 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 unbelievably scary like blake in his leper colony in john carpenter's the fog by campfire we conspire tonight johnny aims to strike down every bowling pin, and spare his compassionate kin. He's a deceased mister. She's a, by episode's end, his released at-peace sister. Good evening, match scratchers. When midnight chimes, we both will meet. Podcasting slick, sick tales to scare. Master your fear, stoke dying heat. Embrace the coal's glowing orange glare. Falsetto, no mister, accent on the toe, and... Dr. Red Devil, with a ruh, ruh, ruh. If you enjoyed Are You Afraid of the Dark, which premiered on Nickelodeon back in the early 90s, then you will find yourself right at home on this cold stone throne around the campfire as we conspire.
Between midnight and first light, we meet, our appetites prepped for delicious tales of fright. In your own unease, crawling skin, tingled spine, and sweaty brow, we take delight. It will be ours before you can see anything beyond our proximal campfire light. Our weekly night light, we cleared, constructed, and consecrated this campsite. In our match-scratch society, we revel in delight. It is both our sacred and unholy duty to your fears in sight. This cold cord of wood ignite your amygdala of fright. If by some miraculous design you survive the scary tale of the night, then it is your solemn campfire scary tale duty to find your match-scratcher ass back to this haunted hollow with your own flash light. You are now tricked or treated, depending on your point of voodoo, with our seventh submission tale of terror. Between midnight and first light, strike a match, and a new batch of dismay, fears, and anxieties not allain tales hatch. The goal is to the last told tale outmatch and leave the loser to the victor begging for a rematch. With that match scratchers, sleep deeply and remember to your bedroom window latch. Podcasted for the auditory approval of the Match Scratch Society, we whisper through the mic our fireside submission somewhere between midnight and first light of Campfire Scary Tales Submission 7. I am extraordinarily excited about these two. This duo, this cluster of two. Dreamy Teen Queen Society, deceased Mr. and his released sister, living in past, dead in present, in the still of the fright. Contrary Cemetery, Dream Girl slash Prom Queen. I remember these episodes well. I watched both of them live. And I remember being so terrified at unexpected moments in both. But I also remember a reverberating melancholy that has stuck with the episodes and me through all of these years. Here's a question, Doctor. Is it the bowl o rama or the bowl o living dead drama? Whoa, I, I think it's both. <laughs> Scrolling newspaper clippings for every Donna and Sally who is trolling for you in a haunted bowling alley. Heyo! She is Johnny's only sister, and he is the dead Donna's only mister. Tale of the Dream Girl is the tenth episode of the third season of Are You Afraid of the Dark, as well as the thirty-sixth episode in total. Dream Girl, March 26th, 1994. When I was young, I used to enjoy the shit out of some nocturnal bowling. I must have gone to the bowling lanes about 25 times, and it was always with a minimum of three to five friends, and we were too young to drink beer, but the nachos and the popcorn and the hot dogs. I was never horrible at bowling, but I definitely was not as deft as I would like to be. I think I was bowling around a 170, and I was not taking it seriously at all. It was fun, especially when they would turn on those lights off of 249 at nighttime, like at 11 o'clock. Oh yeah, the AMF. Yeah, they would turn on like the, the disco lights. Yeah. Yep. On the weekends 
or after nine o'clock. Now, main event, there was actually, that's reminding me, I've actually been on two bowling leagues in my life. For somebody who doesn't bowl particularly well, (laughs) that's pretty crazy. So I was on one in college in that bowling alley. Oh my God. It was like when you think about a 70s bowling alley, wood panel walls with crazy artwork in mosaics, or I guess, what do they call that? Murals. Murals. Was it as cool as the Jaguar and the NASA no. space rocket and Scream the TV series? No, that it, Mac it wasn't Daddy, like that. That Mac Daddy Jaguar? Yeah, it was not cool like that. I don't even remember what they had, but they allowed smoking in there. It was just, oh my God, the seediest bowling alley you've ever seen. Authentic. It was authentic. It was, gosh, I'm surprised I don't have diseases from using those shoes. But then I also was on with some of my girlfriends, maybe, I don't know, like five years ago or something. I was on a bowling league at this place that was really similar to main event. Like you could go and do a whole bunch of stuff. That was fun because, well, one, it was a much higher quality bowling alley situation. And then we met a lot of interesting people there too. So that was actually pretty fun. It got old after having to go every single week. Like it was too much, but Good memories. Looking back fondly at the bowling memories. This is your elucidating excursion into nocturnal, appreciative as it is secretive, submitted and approved trivia. Actress Stephanie Botter was originally considered to portray the lead role until Shania Vaughn was finally chosen. Stephanie would later appear in The Tale of C7. I can tell you without remembering much about Stephanie that Shania was the proper choice. She was absolutely fucking incredible, possibly one of the greatest acting performances in the entire series run. Many online sources have speculated this episode was the direct inspiration for the film The Sixth Sense, 1999. When asked if the show was an influence, director M. Night Shyamalan responded, That's really weird. I don't even think I've seen the show. I don't want to ignore something that might have been an influence, but nothing rings a bell when you say that. This is very bizarre because. I specifically read something as a trivia somewhere that stated this was his direct inspiration for The Sixth Sense. Hmm, we're going to have to fact check. Well, I don't even really care at this point because to me, if he clearly or ostensibly or matter-of-factly had never seen that episode, the overlap is intense and undeniable. It is very, very similar in spirit. <laughs> See what I did there? Creator DJ McHale has said that when he saw The Sixth Sense, He saw the twist coming because of the similarities to this episode. Ah, it's interesting. Doesn't work one way, possibly, but it definitely works the other. This story is Sam's favorite episode. Most of the cemetery tombstones, aha, were props used in previous episodes. Dream Machine, Old Man Corcoran. I remember stating that at least one of the tombstones, I believe, had the name from Cutter's Cutter's Treasure. Yeah. Yeah, Bill Cutter, William Cutter. Yeah, so it was Bill Cutter from Cutter's Treasure which is a very rare two-parter for Are You Afraid of the Dark, and we may very well be going over both of those episodes in this second season of Campfire Scary Tales. David Preston was nominated for a Gemini Award for Best Writing in a Children's or Youth Program or Series. This is the highest rated episode on IMDb. Interesting. It's interesting because it's a very good episode, but it's not the scariest. I think it's just one of the most relatable melancholy stories that's told in a articulate and endearing way. I don't know, but it was a very good episode. The Campsite of Fright. We start with an arm wrestle between Tucker and Kiki, but remember, 
Kiki is freaky and she has freakish strength. Or maybe Tucker's just a little bitch. But either way, she wins the arm wrestle contest because he is a sissy wimp little bitch and she is a tomboy's tomboy. Or tomboy's boy toy. Gary and Frank, it's clear that they're friends. There's a mutual respect there. Frank never really gives Gary any shit. I guess they're the same age. They're about the same size. But I think Frank just doesn't mess with him because he's not really bully material. It's also probably because Gary does his algebra homework. Let's be real. Yeah, I could see that. Gary wears studious glasses. Frank wears like a baseball cap with a propeller on it. Okay, Tucker lost, and he's called Pee-wee, which he does not care for, that moniker. Kiki then calls him a runt. Okay, no wonder every teen is desperately depressed. It's all the bullying and the aspersions that are cast. Sam, you're up tonight. So this will be Sam's story. She talks about something that is relatable, holy. True love is scary. It can strike us at any time, and it's always when we least expect it. Love is what people live for. In my story, it's sort of what they die for. Ooh, that's a great intro. It is. And I think this is her best story ever. But different circles and serialized esoteric groups will argue and pontificate on that very topic. Okay, drinking game. Every time Donna says, Johnny, and if you are feeling really thirsty, if you are feeling irresponsible, each time a clue is dropped that Johnny ain't among the living and upright, take a swig. It's time for the tale of terror. Dr. Red Devil, what did you think about the score in this episode? Well, I don't remember specifically, but I know that they generally have that 90s like elevator music, you know what I mean? And I absolutely am here for it. I found it to have some melancholy with hints of unease. Like when Johnny's in the locker room and they're doing that thing where it's like, it's like a hingy door that's not oiled properly. It's very creepy. The great bangs here for the sister, Erica. Yeah, and that is not a phrase normally associated with bangs. She is one of the most wonderful characters, actresses ever in this show. What did you think about her acting alone? She stole the show, although Johnny was good as well. I thought she was, she was very likable, Extremely. which is what she needed to be for this role. She's likable as a sister, she's likable as an employee, and she's likable as someone that we children, and now adults, were enjoying initially, and now in perpetuity. Okay, Bull O'Rama is the name of the bowling alley where we will be spending most of our time. Bull O'Living Dead drama, I call it. Remember that she is Johnny's favorite sister, but also his only sister. This will be a recurring joke, and sadly, I feel like she's probably had to hear this joke about 150,000 times. This ring is stuck on Johnny's finger. It also is a very feminine ring. Interesting. Also, there's some Sixth Sense speculation already. Remember? This ring in Sixth Sense is a big mic drop moment, and it's a big reveal. Erica, you can already tell in the first five, six minutes, not only can she see Johnny and hear him and converse with him, but she can also feel him physically because he sits on her by accident on the sofa, and she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is interesting. Okay, scariest runner-up scene. I don't know if you agree or not, Doctor, but of course I will heed your medical expertise on the fear factor. I think it's when Johnny is watching TV, reclined on the floor, and there's white noise on the TV, and he's like somewhere between dreaming and coming to. And then you get the Johnny moment, as it sounds like the TV poltergeist style is calling out to him. It's very, very creepy. And it fucked me up as a kid. Yeah, and then she kind of comes up on him, like Samara. 
Yep, Samara coming out of the television in the ring. Absolutely. Freaking A. But this girl looks a lot more well-adjusted than Samara. Yeah, I would be less scared, even though she is a ghost, and I would still be scared. Now let's talk about the colossal dick that is the bowling alley oh my manager. God. Yeah, especially in hindsight, knowing what we know now. He is not only asking Erica to give him a soda pop, but he says in a blasé way right in front of her, which her brother's dead, and we're talking to his ghost throughout this episode. I mean, obviously you've seen the 22, 24-minute episode, but he says, well, I'm going to have to hire another maintenance guy at some point, but I haven't had to for months. Four months, I believe. What a dickbag. He basically just said that he's so happy in his cost savings and the bowling alley profits, he could give a wet shit about what happened to her brother, who died abruptly and unceremoniously, and she's working there still. It is a dickbag move for like 15 reasons. I hope that son of a bitch falls in a pitfall or bear trap. He has to know that Johnny was her brother. He has, yeah, he he has, has to, to know. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think four months ago, I think he said four months, which would suggest that Johnny has been dead four months. Not to be confused with F-O-R months, which would just mean a series of months that we don't yet know exactly the number. Cheryl Lightheart. This is a chick at the bowling alley that Johnny's sister thinks he has eyes for. Well, there's a little bit of confusion going on, but we'll let it go because he's a confused man and he's a confused spirit. Yeah, and you noticed something this last time that we watched it when she turns and kind of looks through him. Well, we're getting to that right now. Oh, sorry. I call it the girls bowling shoe scene and they sure are persnickety. They're like, you gave us the wrong sizes. <laughs> I asked for a six, not a nine. <laughs> Johnny is standing behind this pack of broads and it's extremely subtle and it's actually very well done. I don't know how much time was put into editing this, but he's standing behind this girl and she just kind of detects his presence and she starts looking around. At no point does she look directly at him, but she's looking around, kind of scanning the area and I guess she can feel him or smell him or something, but she's like, do you guys hear anything? Do you feel anything? <laughs> They're like, what are you talking about? That's like my Dane Cook female impersonation. Very nice. Yes. But I think it's just kind of keeping things open-ended at such an early point in the episode. And it reminds me of Ghost, you know, with the late Patrick Swayze. Love that movie. Total classic. Where's my stuff? What a bitch. Now, as hell. it's very scary. And it reminds me of Constantine, a movie that was not only our first slick flick pick under Kimohawk Sessions, but there's a whole bowling alley sequence in Constantine because it's basically a derelict bowling alley that serves as his headquarters. Yep. And the back of the bowling alley, where the ball meets the pins and all those mechanisms work, mm -hmm. it's very weird and claustrophobic. Creepy, yeah, yes. that little alley behind the bowling alley. But Donna appears back there and it becomes a cat and mouse game between the ghost of Donna and the ghost of Johnny. He is simply trying to figure out where she is, where she's going, and what the fuck is going on. I would say it's fair that Sixth Sense is splattered all over this episode. And since it came out first, I mean, I don't think Sixth Sense was based on a book or anything. I think it was just the wiles of M. Night Shalaman. But it's very similar, and it's also a beautiful, successful story. Like, Sixth Sense brought in so much money, this episode is ranked yeah, the highest. that's true. So people yeah. like this story. Mm -hmm. Okay, the mom is walking around the house. Erica's in the house. Johnny's in the house. She drops a letter on the ground and just dismisses it and walks upstairs. Well, this is a private letter addressed to Johnny, and she does not seem too intent on opening it. Well, this, of course, will make sense by the episode's end because Johnny is dead, and she does not want to read something that's addressed to him by an admirer or something because it's just too hard for her. 
At least that's how I interpreted it. As he's a ghost, maybe the letter can only be seen by him. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and sent to him by a ghost. Sure. You know? Now, the Midnight Bowl-O-Rama Snack Bar. I think love we, it. we both love this scene. Yes, we both love it. it I love how everybody's, like, staring at him. Well, it's actually really <laughs> creepy, but it also kind of reminds me of Back to the Future, where it's taking you in the present time and putting you in a different time, and you having to just adjust on the fly. Yeah. Also, like, Pleasantville is kind of like that. Or Twilight Zone, where Johnny's just having to react. But I love that they're all dressed up like Norish characters, and I love these Norish Nighthawks basically diner scene uh, straight out of edward hopper's nighthawks and the waitress like it's cool that it's the night shift obviously this never happens ever at this bowling alley and johnny's just kind of rolling with it and it's like a moment that time forgot and the clock is striking midnight apple a pie a la mode and a two cola chaser and i call it a ghost eraser he's like wait a second that's my fave how did you we know if you were a ghost what would yours be we know we know we know i don't know I mean, that sounds fine to me. Fuck the ice cream. Just give me hot, extra syrupy, extra cinnamony, crusty apple pie. And by crusty, I mean a crisp crust. I don't mean like been in a closet for three weeks. And cola's fine, but I think with my apple pie, with no ice cream, I would like to have some bourbon, please. But if I'm his age, I probably can't have bourbon. So we'll just say tonic. I don't know. But it sounds good to me. Meanwhile, you hate apple pie and you never want it. Gross. Gag. No. We know. We know. Stuck ring and a deathless fling. That's what I call it. Ayo! Sounds of the train drive Johnny insane. Woo! Newspaper clipping. Car accident. Things are heating up in this plot. We have, kind of like Johnny, fractured pieces of the whole. His sister is not being cruel nor manipulative. My take on it was that Erica realizes that she has to let him come to this conclusion on his own. Right. I further speculate that maybe she's tried before and it never worked. So I think maybe this this four months has been a trial period for her to realize what needs to happen to close this loop. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, she seems intelligent. So I'm sure if, if he's truly been dead four months, I'm sure that she's tried other things. And it's all led to the conclusion that she needs to try it this way. Plus, maybe, I mean, obviously she loves her brother. That's very, very apparent. Very apparent. So she probably doesn't want to shock him into it, you know, and obviously she wouldn't want to cause him pain of any sort. If a ghost can feel pain, I don't know. But if it happened to me, I'd probably be freaked out, honestly. But I could see wanting to soften the blow. And but also she's probably kind of holding on to him. We kind of get that sense in the end as well, even though she knows deep down she can't. It's possible there's a selfish component. I don't know. I guess it's not malicious, though. Like, I know, I know. I just mean like this. The beauty of it is the multiple interpretations that can be extracted and broached from just one less than twenty-four minute episode. That's what's impressive. Also, railroad track and a panic attack. Ooh, wow! You're really on a roll with the writing. Erica is tremendous here. She's what I call patient, polite, considerate, warm, and sisterly. In fact, she fucking ruined it for me because I have two half sisters, technically, and I just wish. They could be even a modicum of her magnanimousness. But hey, she's a fictional sister, and he's a fictional or fictitious mister. Why does she not have a dude? That's the question. Then bangs alone are worthwhile. <laughs> I don't understand. Bangs are brave, so I'm just saying, you know, good for her. Good for her. Okay, the scariest scene, I know we talked about it. Donna at the locker, out of fucking, yes. out of fucking nowhere. The first time I watched this, it did catch me. I was like, ah! That's a good one. That's a good one. At least she's not all horribly deformed, like Blake in the leper colony. She's so pretty. If I was you when I was watching that, 
I'd have a crush on her probably when I was a little kid for sure. I thought Erica was the winner. Donna really? Was a- when you were a kid? Donna was fine. And her little letter jacket and shit. But Erica was always my favorite. Very interesting. Well, she has kind of a Nev Campbell way about her. I don't know. Yeah. They also actually look like siblings. Good job on the aesthetics of the casting. Okay. The ring falls off his hand, just like the sixth sense. And it's after he confronts Donna and she's like, okay, I won't bother you anymore. I won't bother you anymore, Johnny. Erica lets him officially figure shit out for himself. Like Sean Connery said in Last Crusade. Self-reliance. I taught you self-reliance. Now we're at what I call the arbitrary cemetery. And he arbitrarily falls to a very specific grave. Johnny, think about it. How did you know this is where she'd be buried? This is the first time in this episode that Erica is showing frustration. And it's justified. Because she's been tortured with all this knowledge that she can't quite articulate or transcribe for him. And it's totally fucked up. But she's not mean about it. She's really not. And that's to her credit. Left behind ring to his kind sibling. Wow, how many more of these do you have? We'll find out. But the ring, this token, this gesture is left to his sister as she stands lugubriously at this cemetery. <laughs> this is a tearjerker for fucking sure. I remember getting choked up as a child. And just the other day we were watching this and I felt my peepers getting lubricated with sad fucking realizations. Erica is a hell of an actress here. And I feel their plight, even though I don't have a normal brother, sister, sibling relationship, but I feel it. Now you have two, count them, two siblings. Does this speak to you at all? Now I know that the weirdest things make you cry, but this should definitely fucking qualify <laughs> in my teary eye. Uh, well, I didn't cry necessarily, but if that, if I was Erica. Do you feel warm? Yeah, of course. Okay, good enough. The whole episode, I feel that though. We learn on the cemetery tombstone that it says, together eternally, 16 years old. They died, the car on the tracks, they went back to get the ring, blah, blah, blah. Really, it's like Fight Club about not being too materialistic, or the things that you own might end up owning you, Tyler Durden. Also, Erica has dimples. Why? Because along with the bangs, she's a looker, and she's a winner. Also, that's where I saw the Cutter Easter egg, I call it, on the grave. Bill Cutter. Cutter's treasure, great episode, two-parter, possibly we will release in season two. We are back at the campsite. Good one, Sam! And it was perhaps her best episode ever. Also, she does have a good episode, Night Shift, which we obviously enjoy. But I don't think Night Shift is as good. It's not as emotionally devastating, nor is it as elegant as this episode. But Night Shift might be her best scary episode. Coming soon, by the way, Vampires from Are You Afraid of the Dark coming soon. In fact, we will have a two-parter with two vamp characters as the primary antagonist. Tucker says... Cool, you're a ghost, and you don't even know it. Kiki, in a mean, condescending tone, tells him, Yeah, you're a runt, and you don't even know it. Wow. Tucker is mad, and tells her he'll show her who a runt is, and chases her. Gary quickly declares the meeting over, and then they all swiftly run away to catch up with Tucker and Kiki. The fire is put out by Gary. Typical conclusion of the conflagration. Smokey the Bear would in fact be satisfied. It is worth noting here that they rush off, though. Yeah, so maybe he'd only be half satisfied, because you're supposed to ensure that your fire is placed out. It's time for the oral moral, or the unholy grail of the tale. As her good-looking bro lands Donna as his eternal flame, Erica deserves the same, but for a living, breathing, above-ground dude. If your gelatinous prick boss makes a joke at your dead brother's expense, 
when he asked for a cola, give him a poison chaser. If your mom has not spoken a word to you in four months and you live with her, perhaps you should consider tapping her goddamn shoulder. Finally, if your only sister puts up with the agony of knowing you are a ghost and patiently waits for your dumb, slicked hair ass to figure it out for yourself, then she is the real dream girl. Red Devil, Doctor, how much did you enjoy this episode and why? This was an eight and a half to nine for me. I just love the story, love the characters, love the setting, setting, love the actors, period. The logs may be wet, but are you drunk yet? Is your horrifying future set? This prom queen is neither mean nor obscene, but she knows how to fake a smokescreen and make a scene. From Milkshake's Dairy, Cemetery's Scary, and a cousin who's dressed like a ghoulish, glowing fairy, I would, meeting a chick at a gravesite, remain wary. This cemetery proves contradictory, rather contrary. The Tale of the Prom Queen. Very, very good episode. Very fucking solid. It is the twelfth episode of the first season of Are You Afraid of the Dark, as well as the twelfth in total. Prom Queen, November 7th, 1992. Great experience in a cemetery in Raleigh. That's what comes to mind. Well, technically it was Charlotte, if we're being real. I get it confused. Oh, yeah. But we did Raleigh, too. I know. And Raleigh was fine. But I get confused because I'm still lingering on the emotional distraught disposition from trying to see a Purvis concert in Charlotte when COVID was in the prime of its life, and I did not have a vaccine card on my person, so I was denied entrance. However, the lining of a silvery sheen is that I got to walk through this awesome, terrifying, legit shit cemetery twice, once in complete darkness with Dr. Red Devil and while the sun was just beginning to set, and it may be the coolest walk I've ever had in my entire existence in a cemetery, and I would love to go back to Charlotte just to see the cemetery, walk it, and eat at a couple of barbecue joints that I've never quite had the pleasure. It was creepy. Just saying. But I've always liked cemeteries, even when I was young. And you get to see a shit ton of cemetery in this episode. Much like in the show Supernatural, it's not uncommon for many episodes to end at, in, around, or under a cemetery. Dr. Red Devil, you have a story about microfilm. Well, actually, I want to back up here. I mean, my microfilm story is not super exciting, other than the fact I used microfilm. In fact, no, it was microfiche that I used. And I used to have fun playing with those. But I want to tell my my cemetery story, which is we grew up in Houston, not very far up the road, maybe about an hour, is Sam Houston's grave. And so in Huntsville, they have this huge cemetery. It's old. Lots of people, lots of graves indicate that several of the cemetery occupants are there because of the scarlet fever outbreak that occurred in Texas. But as I was, it's like a very hilly cemetery. And so I was there. It was during the day. I was there with my mom and her friend and we were all walking around. I'm creepy and morbid and like to read the gravestones. All of a sudden, I was reading the gravestone and all of a sudden I look up and there is nobody. It's like everybody disappeared out of the cemetery and I was super freaked out. I had to have been like in seventh grade because we had to do that Texas history project where you go to different areas and then you have to like write a report on it. So it has to have been when I was whatever age you are at that time. But that was scary. That freaked me out. It would freak me out now, probably. Does that make you enjoy this episode at a deeper level? Well, it makes me happy that I didn't come across a ghost girl. 
It worked out pretty well for all involved, particularly Ricky Mitchell, because she looks sightly in her prom dress. This is your elucidating excursion into nocturnal, appreciative as it is secretive, submitted and approved trivia. The scene when Judy instantly changes into a prom gown, the song In the Still of the Night, I Say Fright, by Fred Paris and the Five Satins, was originally played in the background off and on until the end of the story. However, on new box set releases, the song has been edited out, most likely for copyright. However, it is kept in the version on Paramount+. Plus. Matthew McKay, where have we seen him? Oh, I know. He was Dean Burkham in The Tale of the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Well, he still looks creepy as shit. He still looks like Killian Murphy to me. But at least here, he's an okay dude. Alex. He gives like a thumbs up, which is a lot more benevolent than, You betrayed me, Alex. And now I must rise goth with the Mystic Vapors. In just a few years' time after this aired, Katie Griffin began her long career as a successful voice actress. One of her most memorable roles was the voice of Ray, Sailor Mars, and DIC Entertainment's dub of Sailor Moon. What? I don't know shit about that. Anime is not for me. Oh, man. Sailor Moon was my jam back in the day. Well, maybe when you see a rerun, you might identify her as Judy Larson. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to see if that's on any streaming services. The Campsite of Fright. Kristen is the teller of the tale. Oh, that's kind of neat because we have Sam, who's a cutie patootie, and then we have Kristen, who is also a cutie patootie. Two cutie patooties. They're also women, and Sam, though, has far more personality than Kristen. Yes, this is true. This may be her best episode. And what's really fucking gnarly is that she comes all decked out in yes. like a prom funeral gown with a veil and everything. She is full bore, balls to the walls, insane, and I love it. And they make fun of her, which is also hilarious. It's hilarious because it makes the entrance... And the beginning of the story a little bit unique. Drinking game. If you want to get sloshed, imbibe your libation of choice every time a clue is provided as to Dee Dee's alter ego, or every time Jam acts like a full-blown Vincent Price wannabe fucktard. Kristen is in a ghoulish prom dress. Also, we learn she's always late. That is rude and inconsiderate to people that are meeting you at midnight in the dark. And then I love, love what Kiki says. If she's not beautiful, she stays home. <laughs> That's funny. We have rules, says Gary. I've come to tell you a story. She's method acting, Daniel Day-Lewis style. And I love when she's like continuing on with her story. And I think it's Eric is giving her shit. And she goes, sit down, you geek. And she totally breaks character. Thanks for breaking my chi, is what she's thinking. Help me with the midnight dust. And Gary does, because one, Gary likes her. But more importantly... It's a rare opportunity for someone other than the storyteller to toss the dust. This has not happened with any sort of regularity, but it has happened on occasion. The Tale of Terror. Wildflowers are growing, and they're on some graves. There's some silent prayer. We have this girl in blue jeans just kind of hanging out in the middle of the day in a cemetery. Nothing too crazy, nothing too untoward. It's a nice moment. I do wonder why she's there. I absolutely love this cemetery. Obviously, it's up in Canada. But it is legit shit. It's massive. It's hilly. There are some giant obelisks and all kinds of shit. And then you hear this faint, eerie laughter. I wonder who or what that is. Question. First of all, how much do you like the cemetery? I love it. I would walk around in it. I mean, I like it when the cemeteries, the older cemeteries, how they have like the mausoleums or the really intricate grave markers. She's also very isolated. My other question is, what did you think that eerie laughter was? Do you think it was these two guys she's about to meet? Yeah, I think it has to be, because it's not her. It couldn't be the boyfriend. It has to be the guys, I think. 
And I think they see her from a distance and they're trying to mess with her, as will be evidenced in a little bit. She meets these two guys. Okay, Greg and Jam. What the fuck kind of name is that? Why, jam. Why would you name your child a preservative? Jam band? Maybe he's in a jam band. Maybe they call him Jam because he likes to jam out. I don't know. <laughs> okay, Night of the Living Dead references. Jam is a character, but him, Dr. Red Devil, wants to body slam. You want to body slam oh, Jam. so annoying. You do not like him. You know, I think I probably brought this up. You might even have it in your notes. They really are giving me Hocus Pocus vibes. Ice and, oh, dang, I'm disappointed in myself. What's the other guy's name? Well, you mentioned already a reference to that with Twisted Claw when you're talking about paying the candy toll or whatever for yeah. Halloween. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. But this also, because obviously, so in Hocus Pocus, Ice and the guy who I can't remember his name, they stop Max and take his shoes at the very beginning of the movie and it's in a cemetery. So that's what this, them, Greg and Jam causing mayhem in a cemetery is what vibed me to that. Jam says, forget Halloween, my dear. Night of the Prom Queen. It's basically an urban legend. And you know how we feel about urban legends. We love them when they are illustrated or otherwise personified in the X-Files, Supernatural, and film such as Urban Legend, and just about anything where we have a local legend where there was murder and it was macabre and it was something that has stood the test of time. And this story is no different. The urban legend itself is interesting, and soon we will be looking at the microfilm or microfiche. I can never really tell. I love when Dee Dee says, I'm just visiting. At the time, you can't think much of it, but later on, it's a very telling statement indeed. She's basically just confessed some vital information. And then I love when Jam's like telling this urban legend, he's getting her all roped in, all quiet. Smack! Great. He tells a good story. He's the guy you want holding a flashlight up to his chin around the campfire, telling a story. Why? Because he puts some animation into it. Boys and ghouls? Correct. It is two boys and a ghoul. An actual fucking ghost. How right he was. Yep. And there's other clues to her ghostliness. When they go eat. Which we're going to like, right now, yeah. Yeah, she's like, uh, I'm not hungry. Yeah, who would pass on a milkshake Hell truck? to the no, not me. You would know it was a ghost. There's also tennis courts. When I watched this as a kid, I assumed that this all branched right off of the cemetery. Now I'm not so sure. I don't know how they get from A to B, but they're in a milkshake truck. She does not want anything to eat or drink, and they are talking about next steps. She never eats, ever. Maybe she's just anorexic. I don't know. Mm. She does look rather skinny. Then yeah, she is skinny. They go to the town library. And there's discussion of microfilm. Okay, so Kristen, in a voiceover, actually answers that question. They look at 1950 forward. Wow, that seems extraordinarily daunting, even in a small town. They get to 1956. Saturday, May 8th, 1956. Again, this has supernatural show vibes. Yeah, and Sam would be the one looking at the microfiche. Well, we learn that a girl was killed by a hit-and-run driver, and there's also an image of a bridge. This alone brings me right to the pilot of Supernatural, which is a bridge, and a girl wandering the California roads, and it's really fucking cool. But that was the woman in white. She says, Dee Dee slash Judy Larson, I've never seen one. Well, I was very confused by this. She makes it sound like she's never seen microfilm or microfiche, because remember, we will learn she died in 1956. So I looked it up, and the microfilm shit existed since 1839. So I don't know what she's referring to. I think she's just referring to, because she wouldn't have known what they also learn, I believe. She never saw the article. Never saw the article, but she also learns in that article that her boyfriend died. She would have had no way of knowing that. I'm just confused because she said, I've never seen one. I don't know what that means. Oh, okay. So that's all. But the scariest runner up, the librarian, 
This old crusty bitch. Yes, with this her, is effective. With her tea offering of gloom and doom. The room is dark. You hear a rustling. It is the librarian offering tea. Do you want tea, children? And it was a very well-executed moment. Yeah, and her smile's creepy as shit. But it's the scariest runner-up, not the scariest. Judy Larson, 1955, dead. It was a Chevy and... This is the Mianus River Bridge. The Mianus River Bridge is a span that carries Interstate 95, or the Connecticut Turnpike, over the Mianus River between Coscob and Riverside, Connecticut. It is the second bridge on the site. The original bridge collapsed in 1983. Do you think it was Mothman? I don't know. It's too far north, right? Killing three motorists. The replacement span is officially named the Michael Morano Bridge. There is some interesting information for you. She didn't know that Ricky died. That is something that is going to plague every motherfucker involved. Yeah, and he's the one who drove off the bridge in his Chevy. Ricky Mitchell. I love when Jam's like, Judy, I'm here. You have some explaining to do, basically, and it's funny. Also, they're very psyched about this seance. And she's really getting into it. At first, she was kind of like, She's super getting into it. I actually thought it would have been cool if they had it at a house, but where they end up having it at the site of the crash in this lake that is directly under the bridge, it is totally fucking bonkers. Jam is great here. He's like, will it be here, my dear? He's just so fun and goofy and animated. He's a character, just like you. She then says keen. Now, you were smart enough to know it was a 50s term. Like, keen on that. Well, I looked into it further. The word keen has been used as a slang term, meaning wonderful, since at least the 1910s. That is absolutely insane. Let's talk about scariest. Seance, fog on water, the Chevy coming from beyond the watery grave. The bubbles following them was crazy. But is that equal in fear factor worthiness to Chuck, the cousin, with green glowing wind chimes, walking the cemetery at night, making them think he's the real deal, when in fact he's just a Scooby-Doo imposter? If you had to pick, which of those two is the scariest? (sighs) Okay, I'll tell you the most enjoyable was the cousin, I will say, because that whole entire scene and when we find out that it's a farce, absolutely great. As far as scariest, I'm going with the seance. I feel like the first time that I watched this, that was the scariest part for me. So it's like playing a game of Ouija on the water. It's really cool. And I love the joke that is made after they survive. Maybe he ran out of gas? Judy, I mean Dee Dee, she's getting into the seance shit, as you observed. I love how they leap out of the rowboat. Excellent set piece, if I do say so myself. It's actually just a real place, I think. Bubbles. You know what that reminds me of? Like a tulpa from The Empty Man. Thought forms. The more they think about it, the more it's conjured. I love it. Okay, we're back at the campsite temporarily. Frank says, brave kids. Stupid, but brave. They found Judy Larson in the cemetery records, 1939 to 1956. As she's ultimately a prom queen, this actually makes sense mathematically. Midnight. It's always midnight. I note that the music is like a 50s sci-fi film, perhaps the Twilight Zone. I noticed that as they're walking the cemetery that last time, the music really sounds like something out of a Twilight episode or sci-fi film. It's weird. Okay, this prank is phenomenal. Hilarious. I love it. Jam has his cousin Chuck, who really doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, walk around the cemetery in like a white cloak with these wind chime green glow stick danglies, and he's got everybody fooled. And Greg is shitting his pantaloons, and it's wonderful. Oh man, it's pretty scary. It's it's up there. It's just so scary because you really think what they think. So you think it's more scary than the seance? I don't know. It's one of those things where, you know, the water droplet is falling down the windshield and the rain, you know it's going to land. It's either going to veer to the left or it's going to go straight down. It depends on what day you ask me. 
It depends on the weight of the rain, how much wind. But I like both scenes, and I go back and forth, so it's tough. What a scientific answer that was. But Meteorological. It's, it's ghostly green. It's a ghostly green color from the glow sticks. Green is a recurring motif in the show. For example, Dream Machine. And the Mystic Vapor. And the Twisted Claw. And it will come up in other episodes as well. They just really like green. I think it's because the green glow stick, for reasons that I don't quite understand, Maybe it has something to do with the wavelength spectrum, I don't know. But the green just shows up like the brightest. Well, and green is always like creepy, you know what I mean? When you think about a witch, it's green. When you think about evil, it's always green. Also purple, but purple maybe is too pretty. I love when Greg says, after being fooled, you're losing teeth. Violence, violence, boys. I just love the 90s lingo. One of my favorite things about this show. And now we get to see the dude from Sorcerer's Apprentice. He is still ominous here. He looks scary. And he, I'm telling you, I'm not lying when I say, or otherwise embellishing, Killian fucking Murphy. They could be cousins, possibly direct siblings. Now you have Dee Dee, Judy Larson, and she's kind of dancing to, in the still of the fright. Love it when you sing. We learn that she could not leave the cemetery. This is not a throwaway line. This is exposition, and it's very plot-centric. Unless you boys brought me with you. Then you solve the mystery of why Ricky never picked me up, and you got him to come. Damn. Girl, you made them do a fuckload of work. And a fuckload of your dirty work, you slothful, ghostly <gasps> slut. That is so rude, first of all. She doesn't have feelings, she's a spirit. Well, I have feelings, very strong feelings, that that is rude as hell. TD is my nickname, she kindly reminds them. And we get a thumbs up from what I call the Scarecrow, Killian Murphy again. He would actually make a good young Scarecrow, wouldn't he? Of course. This came, yes. out in, this came out in the early 90s, so he's much older now. But okay, this is a, a digression, but you know who I think he looks like? The guy who plays Beast in X-Men First Origin or whatever? Yeah, I can't remember his name. I know Kelsey Grammer was him in some of the X-Men's, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Jam's cousin is really fucking confused right now. Because <laughs> this car is driving through a gate. There's a disconcerting fog. They just all interacted with a couple of ghosts. And he just was probably given like a box of Cheez-Its to show up dressed like a fucking mummy. I don't understand it, but there you have it. And it's damn funny. And the car going through the gate, this Chevy, this old 50s Chevy looks pretty awesome. Yeah, that was a cool effect for the time. It literally disappeared through the gate. Now, I'm going to say this for both episodes. This was a positive, elucidating, congruous ending. But Greg, Jam, and Jam's cousin Chuck will never, ever be the same. Just like Erica from Dream Girl will never be the same. But they're both happy, satisfying endings, and there's nothing really left lingering except all the questions that Chuck's going to have, and he's probably never doing Jam a favor again. And then Kristen lifts the veil. The end. Pleasant dreams, everyone, Gary says, of course. The fire is put out by Gary. Smokey the Bear would be satisfied. Nothing remarkable about this fire affair, except the fact that no one has shit to say. They were eerily enamored by her tale. I love it. The oral moral or the unholy grail of the tale. If you happen upon a pleasant, sightly, docile creature in the cemetery, alone, with a warm voice and naturally pleasing complexion, she is either a ghoul, a pickpocket, or a mortician. If your friend's birth certificate name is Jam, expect him to be the one to monopolize the suburban legend retelling and speak in Dracula-esque ghoulish voices. Never ever, I mean not even once, except shady tea from a strange old woman who accosts you from behind in the dark corner of a library when you are scrolling microfilm. And finally, if you are sharing a milkshake with your bro dude and the thin chick compadre passes on food, 
and milkshakes entirely, she is either anorexic or a spirit posing as a carbon-based life form. I want a milkshake now. Her milkshake brings two boys to the cemetery. Oh my god. (laughs) Red Devil, Doctor, how much did you enjoy this episode? Why? And how does it compare to Dream Girl? Okay, Dream Girl is far superior, although I really did like this one. So I'm going to give it a seven and a half to an eight, probably an eight. I like the story. I love Judy slash Dee Dee. I feel like she's real cute and sly in this episode. I love at the end, too, when you get the reveal, she like does the Wonder Woman spin and all of a sudden all is revealed. So yeah, I definitely think that Dream Girl is superior, but also love Prom Queen. What do you think? I think I like this episode more just from an entertainment factor, but I think that Dream Girl is a superior episode in quality and in acting. Neither one of us care for the guys that much in this, but everybody was in top form in Dream Girl. The logs may be wet, but are you drunk yet? Is your horrifying future set? Do not easily scare, as we declare this seventh two-parter episode of Campfire Scary Tales concluded. Dr. Red Devil, with a ruh, 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 and I, have, in fear-inspiring machinations, colluded, and terrified your insides, unless it is we who are deluded. Collect your new batch of match-scratcher sheep. Find a cold rock seat to warm, poke with your makeshift spear the waning fire. Roast those mellows before they exceed their shelf life and expire. Master your storytelling and your fears upon this pyre, and await with deathless, breathless anticipation your next Campfire Scary Tale with Campfire Scary Tales Submission 8, Nightly Shifty Match Scratch Society, Awkward Crosses to Wear, Shifty Neighbors to Bear, Nocturnal Shift, Shifty Neighbors, Blood Bags, Red Flags, and Toe Tags, Nightly Neighbors, Night Shift. This is going to be a very congruently themed episode two-parter, as both, count them both, deal specifically with vampires. Your host, that's Falsetto, No Mister, Accent on the Toe, and co-host, Dr. Red Devil, with a ruh, ruh, ruh. Until next time, Match Scratchers. It's the most fun at this secluded park when swapping campfire scary tales after dark.